in there. Romans uh, is a, a, probably one of the most, if not the most, famous book of the Scriptures. Uh, most people that don't even go to church, don't hold a Bible, will know at least of the book of Romans. They will have heard of it uh, time to time. Uh, it's amazing how many times you'll find um, a verse from Romans or a verse from John uh, on posters at, at public events, people trying to get folks to look up Scripture verses. Uh, Romans is one of those two. In fact, when uh, Bible Scripture printing places don't have, they, they, well, they want to get the gospel message out as much as possible, they don't want to print the whole Bible, oftentimes they'll print in John and Romans. And between those two books, uh, there's a, a great wealth of information and easily understood information about how a man can know that he's a sinner, uh, how that he can know that Christ died for his sin, and how, he, how they can know that by their faith, they can uh, have forgiveness of that sin and be justified in the sight of God. And Romans is, is a book that really, that is, that is the main theme, the righteousness of God that is imputed to sinful man uh, because of the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uh, spends more time in this book than probably any other writer or author of Scripture does in their books. The four Gospels deal primarily with the life and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as far as giving a narrative about the events of it, Paul goes out of his way to give application to it. What is this perp- what, why did Jesus do this? What was the purpose of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and how it applies to us through the, uh, the means of salvation, um, the justification work that God does in us? Um, it has been called the principal passage in Scripture on conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul is very, very good on this. In fact, we're going to see in a few moments that this book easily divides into four main sections. And he's very good at establishing um, salvation and how it comes by faith. And then how, in light of that, in, in light of our relationship with Christ, how we now should live. And Romans deals with that uh, quite a bit in the last half of it. <clears throat> so it's the principal passage in Scripture on conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are a number of things that people have called it. One man uh, called it this. He said it's the most profound book in existence. Another fellow said it's the cathedral of the Christian faith. Martin Luther said it is the epistle. Uh, this epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and very purest gospel. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And these uh, are all given to describe the book of Romans uh, because of the clarity that Paul gives in the depiction of the plan of salvation, how clear it is, uh, how concise it is, how easily understood it is. And uh, so there's four major divisions of it. We're going to look at some Scripture here, so keep your Bibles handy, if you will. In uh, just a few moments, we're going to be uh, looking at several Scriptures. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and start working on uh, dealing with uh, the four major divisions or four uh, uh, sections, if you will, of the book of Romans. The first one is Paul establishing uh, the righteousness of God. Now, the reason he does this is because by the time he gets to the end of chapter 1, first part of chapter 2, and into chapter 3, he's going to, and Paul is really good at writing this way. He, if you look at his, his epistles, Paul is a master writer in the area of 
establishing a foundation for a truth that he's going to express. And he does this in a masterful way. Of course, the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, inspires him, and, and we know that from Scripture. But he lays a foundation that cannot be refuted. By the time he draws his conclusion, the conclusion cannot be disputed because there has been so much evidence given to it. Uh, and so Paul does that. He uses this in the book of Romans. And um, he begins by establishing uh, the righteousness of God. In other words, God's getting ready to bring judgment on man and to show his need, uh, how that men are not righteous. And he does this by first establishing that God is right in doing this. He's righteous and he's holy in every way. So the first uh, section is dealt with uh, in, from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3, where Paul builds a very solid case for the condemnation of all people under the justice of a holy God. And uh, not, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but everybody is condemned because God is a just God and God is a holy God. He deals with the righteousness of God. And, and by the way, that is not unfair of God to judge in that way. Uh, God is always just. I was talking to some folks even just this week, and Lord willing, next, next hour we'll be preaching on some things that came out of some discussions I had this week with several people. And uh, I was talking to somebody this week, and, and our, our tendency as humans is to uh, try to determine whether something is unfair or not when it comes to things, matters of justice, because uh, we have a certain standard of justice that we, we hold to. And we think, okay, that's unjust, or this is just, or this is fair, and this is unfair is the way we normally word it. But that's predicated on an understanding of justice that is flawed, because we're human. And no matter where we think our, our standard of justice is to where uh, it is either fair or unfair in that area, understand that we need to know in our hearts that our level of justice, our standard of justice is flawed. And something we need to keep in mind when it comes to the justice of God, it is something we need to be absolutely convinced of and believe, and that is this, that God's justice is always perfect. It is unflawed. And we may look at something God did and in our flawed sense of justice say, that's not fair of Him to do that. But we need to understand that when it comes to trying to determine which justice is right and wrong, our justice is always the one that's flawed. His is never flawed. And so God is right to condemn every man because of their unrighteousness. He's right to do so. Uh, sometimes when we give the gospel plan, there are people who say, well, that's not fair. He's a loving God. Why would He uh, be so harsh as to give that kind of justice and judgment on sin? Because His justice is always right. And we need to be convinced, convinced of that. And so Paul lays this out. Uh, he deals with the first part of uh, chapters, uh, chapter 1 through the, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. He, he deals primarily with the Gentiles and how that the Gentiles are guilty before God for a couple of reasons. They, uh, first of all, suppress the knowledge of God that they received from two places. They suppress the knowledge of God that they received, according to Paul, uh, by nature itself. That nature itself bears witness of God. And the Bible says in chapter 1, so that they are without excuse. I've heard people say, well, what about people who never get a chance to hear the gospel message? The truth is, even, the, even nature itself uh, bears witness of a Savior. 
And uh, the Bible teaches us this in Romans chapter 1. But they uh, suppress the knowledge of God that they receive from nature itself. Any man with any common sense can look at nature and say, there has to be a God. And for people who are... You have to be educated to not believe in God. Can I say it that way? You do. Because the Bible says that nature itself bears witness. The Bible tells us in Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Uh, man has to be educated to quit believing in God. They don't, they don't come by that naturally. You hear a man say, well, I'm an atheist. He wasn't born that way. He had to be taught those things. Uh, the, the second thing that they suppress their knowledge in is their God-given conscience. He talks about that in chapter 1. He says they, they did all of these things, and for that reason God gave them over to a reprobate mind. But their conscience uh, before that, before He gave them over to a reprobate mind, there was a conscience against those things. That's why God gave them over to a reprobate mind, where they have no more conscience about it. But they started off with a conscience, and that was God-given. Where did that moral authority come from? What, what, we look at uh, standards of right and wrong, and even as corrupt as our world is today, and how there's so many things that they have upside down and backwards, and they call right wrong and wrong right, there still are some lines that we say you don't cross those lines. Where did that come from? Who set that standard? Our conscience that God gave to us. There is a moral conscience that God gives even to the Gentiles, even to the unsaved, uh, there is, a, a, and so Paul says this: the Gentiles are without excuse, because creation declares there's a God. Their consciences themselves have taught them that there is a God, and they've denied it. They've suppressed that, and so Paul says they're condemned by God. Now he goes on to say uh, that also the Jews are condemned by God. And he does this in the rest of chapter two, beginning part of chapter three, down to really down through about verse twenty. Five or so. He's dealing primarily in chapter 3 with the Jews. If you take time to read the earlier part of the chapter, uh, he talks about the Jews who think, uh, well, you know, we, we can't be uh, rejected by God because we're the children of promise. But he said not everybody that is a Jew uh, is, is, this, is this group. He said there was a, a, a condemnation of the Jews too. And so he says the Jews are under condemnation not because they didn't have the truth. The Jews had the truth. The truth is, with the Jews, they rejected the truth. And uh, they rejected it uh, by several things. Number one, they rejected the law because they did not heed to doing the works of the law in the Old Testament. They didn't come into conformity of the law. They disobeyed the law. They had other gods. They worshipped false idols. Uh, They would get into uh, periods of time where they were immoral. They coveted. They did all of these things that were contrary to the law. And they disregarded the law, having the truth. And so they, they're under condemnation for that. Uh, their disobedience to the law is what places them in that. And then uh, you'll find in the early part of chapter 3, uh, I think it's around verse 4, 5, 6, somewhere in that range, that Paul addresses the fact that uh, they did not hold to the oracles of God, the promises that God had given to them, and there was a disbelief in some of those things. And so for these reasons, the Jews are condemned every, also. So. You only have two types of people in the world, according to Romans and and Paul's classification here. You have the Jews, and then you have everybody else, and they're called the Gentiles. And if the Gentiles are condemned, and the Jews are condemned in the sight of God, then we have to say all men are condemned. And by the time Paul gets to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. He has done his homework on laying that foundation, making an irrefutable proof of the statement that he makes there. And so this is dealt with in the first part of Romans. Man has to understand his lost condition. If a man doesn't realize he's lost, how can he be saved? What, what would he be saved from if he didn't realize he was lost? He has to understand this. He has to understand that, that we are all under condemnation by a holy God. And, and God's not unfair to condemn sin. He is certainly within his just uh, righteousness to do so. But then in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 4 through chapter 8, he uh, now gives us uh, the plan that God uses for justifying man. And uh, so we see the justification of God, not just the uh, condemnation or the righteousness of God uh, being established uh, for, condemn, for condemning men, but now we see the justification of God. There are several things that are dealt with in chapters 4 through 8, and I love this. Paul establishes three main things. The first one is he establishes God's grace being the source of our salvation. We do not get salvation by our merit. We don't get salvation by our good works. We don't get salvation because God owes it to us. We have salvation offered to us. The source of it is only because of the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. The second thing that he deals with is the basis of salvation. What is it that saves us? Yes, God gives us His grace, but there had to be a shedding of blood. And he deals with the fact that the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the basis, it's the payment for the salvation that's given. So while grace is the source, uh, the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis of our salvation. And then the method of our salvation, if you would call it that, or, or the condition that God sets for us to be saved, is faith. I, I was listening to a fellow a while back, uh, just a few weeks ago. In fact, I shared it in church. Uh, and I, he, he made a presentation that when I first heard the first few things he said, I was shocked by what he said, and I thought, boy, this is not going to be good. Because there was a, a woman who didn't, didn't believe, that was, didn't trust Christ, and was talking with him. And he had been trying to share the gospel with her. And she asked a question. She said, uh, she said I just don't believe that. She said, uh, what do you think is the standard to get to heaven? What do you have to do to get to heaven? He said, he, she said, what is that standard? And the man that was standing up there talking to her said, perfection. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. And she looked at him puzzled, and she said, Well, didn't you just say that everybody, there's nobody that's perfect? And he said, Yes, that's true. Nobody's perfect. She said, Well, then are there any people in heaven? He said, Yes, there are. She said, How do you explain that? He said, Grace. Because the truth is, it's by the grace of God, and Paul deals with this in Romans, that God takes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfection, and he places that on our account. Is anybody perfect? No. We see that in Romans chapter 1 through 3. Does it require perfection to get to heaven? According to the justice of a holy God, yes. Then how in the world can we ever think we're going to make it there? One way. By putting our faith, which is the way we get there, in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the basis of it, and it is given to us by God's grace. He doesn't have to do it. He does it because He loves us. And this is so clearly seen in the book of Romans. The grace of God being the source, the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ being the basis of our salvation, 
And the method or the condition by which we get saved is our faith. And faith is not a work. We're dealing with that on Wednesday nights. I hope you'll be here next Wednesday night as we continue our study through the, the topics of election, predestination, and those, those sort of things. And um, understanding that faith is not a work. It is by the free will of a man. And uh, we have the choice to either get saved or not saved. We don't believe in irresistible grace. We don't believe that some are elected to be saved arbitrarily, that God says you're saved, you're not, you're not. But that God has given us the will to choose. And we do believe that uh, very strongly. So uh, we see this in chapters 4 through 8, the justification of God. In that section, he doesn't just end with the fact that we are justified in the sight of God by our faith through His grace. Uh, but also he starts to deal with the topic of what we call sanctification. Sanctification is a big word, and it just means to become more like Christ. We're set apart uh, to now live a life not after the flesh. We are not under the bondage of the law. We are no longer bound under the law, but now we walk by the, by the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're no longer under that condemnation, and and as such, because we're to walk after the Spirit, there is to be a sanctifying work. Uh, This is very important for us to understand the two things that we need to uh, realize about our sanctification. Number one, when we get saved, we're made free from the law, and we are now uh, allowed to live by the working of the Holy Spirit in us, and we need to understand that we are now dead to sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect, but we should have a new spirit in us that longs to walk after Christ, to become more and more like Him. Uh, The second thing we need to understand is that our walk with the Lord needs to be such that we identify with Him in every aspect of our lives. That we have no problems. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the idea that we should not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go out in public, I've, I've seen people that have done this before. Uh, I guess in their Christians, I, I'm, I'm assuming they're Christians, but uh, their food will come at the, at the uh, restaurant. And they'll, they'll do the quick sneeze in the napkin kind of prayer. Or they'll drop something on the floor and pray on the way down and amen on the way up. Because they don't want people to see them. And, and we, ch- we, ch- we, we chuckle at that, but the truth is, there's a lot of that that happens. People don't want it. Well, what's going to, you know, people are looking. You mean i got to pray right here in public? Well, sure. Absolutely. Go ahead and pray in public. No problem with that. Are we ashamed of it? Are we, are we embarrassed about it? Do we not want people to know that we're a Christian? Do we not want people to realize that we've trusted Christ as our Savior? So we need to, uh, when it comes to our sanctification, we need to learn that we need to be dead to sin and that we need to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, these are the things that need to be dealt with. Then uh, the, the third section is chapters 9 through 11. <clears throat> and we find here um, a, uh, a, a semi-rejection of Israel. And that's the best way I know how to put it. Uh, and it seems to be, and I hate to even word it that way. Uh, when I say rejection of Israel, I don't mean that Israel was rejected by God, although He has put them aside for a while here. But more importantly... Uh, Israel's the one that rejected God, not God rejecting them. God does put them on the shelf. God does give them the consequences for their choice. But the truth is, I, I know a lot of people who say, well, God has rejected Israel. No, Israel rejected God. 
God never rejected Israel. Uh, just, you know, hey, they're, they're doing right, they're doing what they're supposed to, and God says, oh, I'm tired of that, I don't want them anymore. God responds to their rejection. And this is the reason why He has, for a period of time, uh, kind of put Israel to the side. He's now working through uh, His local church uh, in the day that we live today. But there's two things we need to know about this. I do not believe in replacement theology. I do not believe that the church has replaced or that Christians have replaced Israel as God's chosen people. We have never replaced them. We've been grafted in, which I'm thankful for. Uh, and God has cut off Israel for a period of time, but that doesn't mean that He's rejected them permanently. But there's two things about it we need to know. That this cutting off uh, is uh, temporary, that God will restore Israel once again. He'll be able to graft them back in again. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, He's able to bring them back in again and graft them in again, which he does in the end time, and brings them back to that same elevated status of his chosen people. So they are not cut off forever. They have been postponed during this period of time uh, where God is uh, not primarily, and I use that word primarily, dealing with the nation of Israel, although Israel is still very significant, isn't it, in God's timetable of things. Uh, so it's not that he's not used them, uh, he's, he's just not using the way that he would choose to use them as his children. Let's put it that way. The second thing we need to know is, even though God has cut off Israel in that area, in that sense, for a, a period of time, there is still a remnant of the Jews that God has always kept. And there is a remnant of them that do believe in the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. There's a large number of them, in fact. Not as many as we would like to see, but there is that remnant. And so, uh, again, God establishes that. Uh, in chapters 4 through 8. He deals primarily in, in those chapters, speaking to primarily the Jews about this issue of, uh, I'm sorry, chapters 9 and 11, through 11, I'm sorry, uh, primarily with the Jews about the temporary uh, uh, being cut off because of their rejection of Him and that they will be grafted back in again. Then the last section is the application of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now that we're saved, and Paul does a great job of this, chapters 12 through the end of the book, Paul deals uh, very, very well with the application of the righteousness of God that has been imputed on our account. So, from a judicial standpoint, God judging to say, okay, uh, this person can come into heaven and be forgiven of their sins, this person cannot. The, the, the difference is, which one has the righteousness of Christ applied to them? That's done by faith. That's by our choice. Okay? Uh, that's done by faith. So, because of this righteousness of God that's been applied to our judicial record, that same righteousness ought to be then lived out in our earthly life. And so Paul deals with this in chapter 12 on. Chapter 12, verse number 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of what He's done for us, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This isn't even extraordinary it's reasonable. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and perfect, acceptable will of God. Uh, and, and so uh, Paul deals with this right at the... I mean, he hits, he shoots the, the, the arrow and it hits the bullseye uh, right there in chapter 12, verse number 1, that we are to live the righteousness of God that has been put into us. And uh, this behavior of our life now needs to be based on our belief and trusting God for our salvation. Uh, so he gives a, a, a lot of uh, practical insights here about how we're to live once we are saved. And you'll find a lot of those given in chapter number 12. 
He deals with our relationship uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He deals with our relationship with God, how it ought to be. In uh, chapter 12, verses 3 to 21, he deals with our relationship in society. As Christians, how should we be in society? How should we live? And you can take time to read uh, chapter 12. It's just one practical statement after another. If you wonder how you and I are to live in this present day, take time to read Romans chapter 12. And he gives a whole list of them uh, in chapter 12, verses 3 to 21. He deals in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, uh, about uh, the higher powers, how we relate to civil government, those that are in authority over us. And by the way, as Christians, we have a responsibility to be obedient and submissive to civil authority. Let me clarify this according to Scripture, in civil matters only. In matters of religion and conscience, we must obey God rather than men. Very important to make that distinction. And then we have uh, the relationship, how we're to treat our neighbors in chapter 13, verses 8 to 14 uh, of the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to look at a few of these very quickly, so let's turn there. Chapter number 12, Romans chapter number 12. And uh, we have enough time. Yeah, we should have enough time to get through these. If not, we'll pick up next week. So the first one is our relationship with God, and we just quoted those uh, verses, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so all of this dealing with uh, our relationship with God, in verse number 2, he tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of society. Will of what man accepts as right and wrong. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to follow after it because it is the will of God, okay, so our relationship with God. And then uh, verse 3 and on down, I'm not going to take time to read all of these, but I'll give you some of them. Uh, Verse number, uh, let's go down to verse number uh, 9, I guess we'll start there. We we could read some there uh, that we need to rule with simplicity and diligence, show mercy, cheerfulness in verse number 8. Verse number 9, it says, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So you can see how just one after another, he gives us bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Here's how we're to live in this present world that we live in today. How are we to live in this uh, world of darkness? Chapter 13 and verse number 1, let's look there. He goes on to talk about our relationship with civil government. He says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not, uh, not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. So, again, he deals with... Uh, these higher powers being ordained of God, they're ministers uh, of God for good. And so, again, in civil matters only, provided they do not uh, go contrary to the Word of God uh, in our obedience to that, we are to yield to that. And so somebody that says, hey, we think that there ought to be a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit on whatever road uh, because we've had a bunch of people in accidents, a lot of people are getting killed, they're doing that for our protection, for our safety. There's a reason for it. So we're to yield to that. We're to give to that. Um, uh, so many other areas of society that you could apply that principle to. 
But if they come in and tell us you can't worship or you can't study the Scriptures or you can't meet corporately to have a church service, then those are not matters of civil matters. Those are matters of religious matters and matters of conscience. And so those things we may need to be obedient to God rather than men. And we may pay a price for that, but this is what the Bible teaches us on those matters. And then verse number 8, he starts to deal with how we're to treat our neighbors. Owe no man anything uh, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And he goes on through uh, the commandments that are given about this. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this, saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So he deals with our relationship with neighbors. And this all dealing with our sanctification, how we're to live now that we are saved. We are to live out the righteousness of God that we gained at salvation. Now, that being said, uh, in chapter 14, uh, we find that our, uh, our sanctification, our, our, our living the way that we should in this present world, is affected oftentimes by our understanding of liberty in Christ which Paul deals with in chapter 14. He deals with our liberty in Christ. I'm not going to take time to read that entire chapter uh, for sake of time today, but you can, uh, you can read that. It deals with the weaker brother and uh, our liberty in Christ, but not to use that liberty as an occasion for the flesh. And so we've got to be careful about these things. Uh, so our, our sanctification will often be affected by our understanding of liberty in Christ. And then in chapter 15, uh, we find that uh, it uh, is shown very clearly uh, how we're to practice some of these things uh, regarding our sanctification. Now, that being said, because Paul deals with this in Romans, he deals with salvation in the early part of the book, and the fact that the righteousness of God is then, once we are saved. Now, notice this, and please don't miss this. The righteousness of God is put on our account judicially when we put our faith in Him. It also is to be lived out now that that righteousness has been applied to our account. It does not have to be lived out in order to be saved. Do not get that confused. Even Paul deals with it in the entirety of the book of Romans. We're saved by faith, period. End of story. Once we are saved, the righteousness of God is applied to our account, and we are now to live out that righteousness. Um, so I, I want to just say this. A changed life, making that change, is not a condition of salvation, but it should be the natural outcome of salvation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. One of the evidences of a man who has truly put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is you'll begin to see that life changing. Some change faster than others. That is not our concern. That's God's concern with that individual. My walk with God is my responsibility. Now, if you see me overtaken in a fault, something I don't understand, I hope and pray that you would come to me in a spirit of meekness as a brother and say, you need to look at this. But understanding that our righteousness, uh, our forsaking of sin, and our living to Christ takes place when we get saved and thereon, not in order to be saved. 
We must understand this fact. Very, very important. Our salvation is by coming to a realization that we are sinners, that there is not one thing we can do to save ourselves, that Christ paid for our sin on Calvary through His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and that only by putting our faith in Him and what He did on Calvary as our only hope of salvation are we saved. That's it. Works will come. Righteousness and a holy life will come from those things. But they are not required in order to have those things. We are saved by faith alone. And that's it. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do a a full message on that subject uh, in the near future and deal with uh, all the nuances of that and all the scriptural uh, ties to that. Uh, Paul did not found the church at Rome. Um, There are two theories of of where the church came from. One of them is uh, that some of the Christians that were at Pentecost, the Jews at Pentecost that were saved, uh, moved to Rome and started the church. There's some evidence to that that's out there, not anything confirming. More than likely, and there's there's more probability that they were... uh, they were believers that came from the churches in uh, Asia, in Greece, uh, and, and those areas when uh, Paul went into Macedonia. If you remember the Macedonian call, and he started the churches uh, in Greece. He dealt with um, uh, Philippi and Corinth, Thessalonica, those areas. Uh, more than likely, it, they were uh, Christians that came out of those churches and moved to Rome and started the church. There's much more evidence towards that. Uh, the Gentiles were the predominant group in the church at Rome. You'll find this in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 11, verse 13 of Romans, chapter 11, verses 28 to 31, and chapter 15, and uh, verse, verse 15, and then all throughout chapter 16. But there were Jews also in the church at Rome. The primary group is that the majority of the group were Gentiles. But there were a good number of Jews there as well. And you'll find that in Romans chapter 2. Uh, and 3, chapters 3 through 4, chapter 7, and chapter 14 of the book of Romans. Uh, the, the Rome of Paul's day, uh, it was the greatest city in the world at that time, uh, with over a million inhabitants. Uh, there was a, 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 a secular historian, uh, Tacitus, uh, who said that when Nero uh, began to persecute um, the Christians in Rome, that he worded it this way, that there were an immense multitude of Christians. So the church at Rome was, was more than likely a very large church because the, the, the wording of this was there was an immense multitude of them that were persecuted by Nero there in Rome. And uh, so, again, probably a very strong uh, church there, very large church. And um, Paul... Uh, at the time had been at the time of this writing, it was about 57 A.D. Was in Corinth specifically uh, in the Greece when he was over in Greece, and he's there at Corinth for three months. And while he's there, he's writing this letter to the Romans. He had been collecting for the need of the saints in Jerusalem, and had some funds together for that, and was going to go to, to deliver those funds, but found out that there was a an assassination plot against him. If he were to go to Jerusalem, people warned him, said, don't go there. And so he goes 
uh, by way of Philippi and some of that, that area, and he takes a, a kind of a roundabout way. <coughs> Excuse me. On his journey there, uh, he comes to um, a uh, city, and let's see if I wrote it down here. I can't remember the Crenshaw. Uh, it's near Corinth. It's a city near Corinth where he meets a, a woman by the name of Phoebe. Uh, in fact, turn to uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And apparently, he, he hands this letter to Phoebe and commissions her to take it to Rome for him. So he's not at this time going to Rome. He does end up in Jerusalem. And, of course, we understand and know there that uh, the Romans had to come to his aid and keep him from being killed and murdered by the people. From there, he uh, petitions. Uh, his case to go before Felix. Later on, he goes to Festus, uh, and then he goes to King Agrippa himself and ends up in captivity at Rome, where he is until the end uh, of his life, or more than likely he was beheaded there in Rome. Uh, chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, notice it says this, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is the ser- a servant of the church, which is in Kren... Ken- Ken- yeah, that word there, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succor of many and of myself also. And so, uh, more than likely, it seems that he wrote this letter in Corinth, uh, traveled uh, through this city and gave it to Phoebe on his way to Philippi, and later on as he progressed down to Jerusalem. And Phoebe is the one who delivers this letter, apparently, to the church at Rome and to the brothers and sisters that are there. The Christ of Romans, Paul presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the second Adam, and as uh, by one man's sin, sin entered into the world, so by the death of one uh, can many be made righteous. And uh, that uh, Christ's righteousness and substitutionary death uh, were provided for the justification for all who place their faith in Him. For all who place their faith in Him. He makes it available to every person. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. He puts that decision in your hands and in mine. (coughs) He offers salvation as a gracious gift to sinful man who uh, are bearing the, uh, by having borne the wrath of God and the condemnation that was supposed to be on man for his sinfulness. And the Lord Jesus Christ took that wrath, He took that condemnation, and paid it for us. His death and resurrection are the basis for the believer's redemption, justification, reconciliation, salvation, and glorification. It takes care of all of those things. The theme is the righteousness of God, and you'll find that throughout Scripture. Not only did He establish the righteousness of God, but man's condemnation because of the righteousness of God and His justice, and the fact that by faith we can have that righteousness of God applied to us by justification. And so the theme seems to be the righteousness of God throughout. The key verses are chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let's look at that very quickly. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, that means those that have been justified, the just shall live by what? By faith. That's it. Faith alone. Um. So uh, that is one of the key passages. And then, of course, a famous passage, Romans chapter 3, verse number 21 through 25. Um, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all 
and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And these are the key passages of Romans. Key chapters are chapters 6 through 8, where he deals with the subject of how to be delivered from sin. If you want to look at the salvation story in a nutshell, chapter 6 through 8 deals with this. He deals with how to be delivered from sin. He deals with how to live a balanced life under grace. Not under the law anymore, but under grace. And then he deals with how to live the victorious life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He deals with those three things in chapters 6 through 8, and those are the key chapters. Powerful, powerful book, the book of Romans. Uh, Very easily understood, very easily studied. And yet, the truth is, every time you study it, it seems like you see something new in it because it is such a rich book and uh, certainly a wonderful, wonderful set of truths there. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer, and then our next service will start here. We'll start a